Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. Uh, more importantly, today I get to speak with uh, Dr. Mani Rao, um, who is a scholar, a poet, and a translator. Uh, speaking of which, we'll be speaking about her brand new, uh, beautiful translation uh, of, of the Sauntaria Lahiri. Uh, the subtitle is A Wave of Beauty. Uh, Mani, welcome back to the podcast. Hello. Thank you. Thank you so much. Good to be here. So tell us a little bit uh, for, for a more general audience, you know, what is this text? You know, what is this text? How, it's how a, does it function? Yeah. Okay. How does it function? Saundari Lahari uh, is a Sanskrit hymn in 100 verses or shlokas, sometimes 103, depending on the manuscript versions. Um, it's in praise of Shakti the primordial goddess. It is uh, apparently written by Adi Shankara, um, probably of the 8th century CE. Uh, it is in Sanskrit and uh, in the Shikharini meter, uh, uses um, uh, a very uh, elaborate and intricate cosmology that is a part of the whole Shakta uh, Tantra, Sri Vidya tradition, and it is used in ritual worship. Many of the mantras are used along with yantras and bija mantras to um, uh, ritually worship Shakti. And it is also practiced as a hymn on its own um, in like Parayana or chanting. There are many, many popular uh, renditions of it on YouTube. Um, people use different ragas to sing it. And uh, lots of people just memorize it. It's part of personal spiritual practice. That, I think, is a broad summary of what it is and how it's employed. Seems what, more popular in South India. What compelled you to do a new translation of the text? Actually, I was very attracted to this uh, uh, many, many, many years ago when I heard it. Um, I was, uh, at the time, I was very struck about how it insisted on the, um, um, the ultimate position of the goddess. Um, when I was doing my field work, I ran into a number of people who shared experiences of um, uh, what what happened and what occurred when they did the Sandarleri. One was a narrative of a practitioner, a mantra practitioner, who um, talked about how the goddess basically hunted her down once she began to memorize this hymn. So um, uh, like pointing to a mystical power that the um, hymn had. And I met another person who was singing on the telephone certain mantras from this work to heal people. 
people would be healed and then the word word of mouth would travel and they would call her and ask her to sing to somebody who had a problem etc so i heard these narratives and the sort of the place it had in the practice and in the imagination of the people who loved it and um uh when i started to do it myself and i started to memorize it myself i found that i could feel it in my body um i could uh, feel its vibrance uh within me and the syllables really sort of each um, shloka seemed to have a different place in one's being and so i just dived deeper and deeper into it as i went along and ended up with translating it and that experience uh that experience of the power of 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 the verses in 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 your being in your body was that the result of a particular initiation or was it just a result of just your coming to the verse uh, the, the text independently it would be hard to say i mean i have had mantra diksha and i do have a sadhana a private sadhana but uh, uh, i don't know you know i never thought about whether that was exactly why that was so but it wasn't a particular initiation into this text for example not into this text no right right so 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 just just to clarify for the audience so mani saying she's had diksha or initiation into mantra sadhana uh, uh, but not uh, necessarily of this text but perhaps there's some transferable uh I benefit don't. <laughs> 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 but uh, nevertheless you 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 started reciting the text and you can feel its yeah power yeah. coursing That's through right. you yeah and i have to say i have to say that um uh mantra is a completely different thing when folks have experienced it when when folks have had mm. initiation and have experienced it and i don't mean necessarily having cognitive or mystical experiences that's a whole different Mm-hmm. we can talk about but literally chanting <laughs> the verse and yes. feeling um what can only be called a vibration yeah uh, yeah throughout your your being yes um yes. it's it's um i discovered uh hindu studies really after i had begun my my my, my mantra sadhana i see uh, independently about the same year maybe close to 20 years ago and huh. for the life of me, my scholarly mind was trying to figure out, is it something <laughs> in how the Aryans came up with the Sanskrit phenomes? Is it something about the Diksha? I, you know, I have my own theory now. Uh, Perhaps okay. I'll share That's, with you at some what, point. What is, okay. But, 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 the, but, but what the, you know, I mean, the grammar is so uh, organized, clearly uh, copious amounts of rational thought went into you know, the Sanskrit language, in addition to being an organic language that changes over time. Although uh, but, a practitioner but, would say that it was not the composition of the hymn, but that it was actually a received sound form. Yes, yes. And this is this is a profound emic understanding of, of the power yeah. of mantra and the nature of mantra and the idea that Sanskrita is actually, you know, etched into the into the heavens itself and we can we can be hit by <laughs> lightning at times and and then and, and put it into something like the the saundarya lahiri of course of course of course but 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 mantra is it's, it's a whole whole different thing beyond just the acoustic dimension if you if you're a musician or, yeah. or beyond Raj, anything Raj, may i add that you know at, at least just so just so that i'm 
clarify my position on it. I don't, I don't have any specificity to do with Sanskrit or uh, in, uh, Sanskrit per se, because syllables are in all languages and there are a lot of vernacular, vernacular mantras also. Um, the, the potency and power of mantra that we, uh, uh, we read about or, you know, uh, about in the ideas, early Indian ideas, and of course the continuing tradition of ideas on mantras is that it is a combination of the syllables that uh, uh, they're made of, no, not necessarily Sanskrit per se, but well, sound. There, there are, yeah, there are, um, there are prime examples in, in the context, for example, yes. the Hanuman yes. Jalisa comes to mind yes. where it's extraordinarily powerful for, 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 for both from a Bhakti perspective, but also from a Shakti perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's 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 pan-Indic, and 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 yet it is it's not in Sanskrit. It's in a particular yes, exactly. Uh, exactly. strata of uh, medieval Hindi, and it's it's exactly. it's a if it's a fascinating phenomenon of something that functions very much like uh, Sanskrit uh, um, yes. composition. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so you were inspired to translate this poem. Uh, into English to do your own translation of it. Could you tell us a bit about that process for you? Um, well, for me, um, it was reading it. It was trying to memorize it. It was uh, feeling it. And at the same time, reading other translations, reading the Bhashya, particularly Lakshmi Dara, and uh, uh, getting the uh, literal meaning uh, going through the tricky parts, the um, making sense of it. And when there was not a literal sense, like when it's um, encoded uh, mantras, you know, where, where there's a word, but it doesn't actually mean that word. It actually means another syllable. Um, taking a call on what should the translation be, you know, whether um, whether you repeat the word or whether you go to the next level, the interpretive level, and say what it is, etc. So those those are all sort of I guess decisions in the process. But the process begins with um, trying to bond with it. What does bond with it sort of look like? Do you feel bond with it in the sense? Uh, uh, go mantra by mantra, go shloka by shloka, and live with each shloka. Um, internalize it, uh, say it, feel it, and then in the translation also, then certain syllables kind of come to the surface in the English um, as a result of that process. And I think the rhythms get sort of into one's. Um, it, it becomes not so conscious sometimes. The, the rhythm happens because of that. In English, yes, yeah. And the syllables seem to surface uh, because of that process, I found. So it's not just a read the, read the Sanskrit and find out what it means and pour over dictionaries and commentaries and write a... Uh, write some sentences and break them up into parts. You know, it's not that. Um, it's, it's, I guess, a more uh, internal process. Yeah. 
I would imagine that it might be similar to what I'm about to describe. And you can, you can tell me if it's different and I'm, I'll just draw on a little bit of personal experience where okay. I've done a bit of translating here or there, but I've, I've been lucky, fortunate so far as, you know, my primary objects of study, um, you know, the Valmiki Ramayana has been translated much of the Mahabharata has much hasn't. Um, 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 uh, Devi Mahatmya has been translated. So, so I've been fortunate enough to have solid English translations, but I do some translations here and there, but, but I, I caved to some, <laughs> caved is the wrong word, but to some pressure on behalf of students <laughs> and a couple of colleagues who thought a new Devi Mahatmya translation might be. Wow. And so I thought, okay, you know, Coburn's is great. Uh, it's, a, it's a generation old and it, 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 certainly faithful and uh, sometimes maybe slightly to the point of being strained, but that's what faithful translations are. So what I'd wanted to do, but that I thought would be a contribution would be to, to translate the Devi Mahatmya in a manner in uh, attentive to rhythm and cadence and pitch in English, what? such that it would have Let's some kind it of, well, it's, 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 it's not, it's, it's, um, it's about to be submitted to, to oh, press, I see. but but it's okay, it's, so it's sort of in a, the process. Okay. But I mean the, okay. the 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 process that I underwent in terms of or or the aim. Uh, I wonder if the aim was similar in your mind of uh, translating a text such that it sounded pleasant. Uh, it, there was sort of rhythm and pitch, uh, you know, you know, in English, uh, you know, it, it sort of attentive to the effect the acoustic effect in english yes absolutely did you were you translating the saptashati um uh, the, the, the 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 entire yes the, uh, yeah okay yes yes the, the 13 chapters of the, the okay. acts of the Devi, right okay yes that's right yes, yes. okay um were there wow I can imagine how hard that would be. Well, it, who knows if it was done or not successfully? <laughs> the time will tell, I suppose. Both, both, both the um. And that is such a long text. Well, it, it's also a text I've been studying formally for uh, since, uh, since twenty eleven, I suppose. Formally, 2010, 2011. I mean, wow. it's a text I dissertated on. The first yeah. book, which was a dissertation, was on that text. The second book was largely on that text. Handful yeah. of articles here, translated a hymn, a couple of yeah. hymns here and there, the frame here and there. And I sort of just had to sit with it and just, yeah, you know, yeah. hymns are of a very different texture than just, than just, yeah. And maybe I'll maybe I'll show you some verses and I'd love some feedback. We'll we'll see. I mean, it just occurs. To I'd me. love to see. You might be a fascinating conversation partner given your experience <laughs> with with such an enterprise. Um, were there parts of the text that you um, were most drawn to, or or or, or, or that you, you know you quite, you quite enjoy the most? Or tell us a bit about you know some highlights, perhaps. I know there's so many to choose from, but i actually liked i liked all the personal uh tone parts you know i like i like the devotional ones where and then i like the very intimate uh tone just suddenly there'll be like a little 
intimate tone you know like where the the poet says uh, uh for example he says so uh, well you're not like the other gods and goddesses you know you don't do your dramatics of mudras and so on you just everything happens just from your feet but that very intimate tone which sort of assumes something and does a comparison and then places a certain value on who shakti is that i found really most charming um and i told you the devotional ones are really nice too i mean that i i really um related to those very well i think it was verse 27 i think yeah would you would you be willing to read some of it for us sure 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 thank you for asking <laughs> i mean isn't that really the heart of the matter the actual translation itself yeah well uh, one yeah, would yeah. hope <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah so um i'm just going to do the should i do the sanskrit even though i'm not a singer either or uh, anything that anything anything card, at all card, okay card blanche recitation I'll... yeah <laughs> okay japo jalpa shilpam sakalam api mudra virachana gati pradakshinya kramana mashana adhyahuti vidhi pranama samvesha sukhamakhila matmarpan drisha saparya paryayastava bhavatu yanme vilasitam let my chatter be the repetition of your name mantra japa let my activity enact mystic signs mudra let walking be the steps of circumambulation pradakshina let all food be offerings to sacred fire ahuti may laying down be a prostration to you pranama let all pleasures that give me comfort be like an offering of my own self atmarpana may whatever i enjoy be yours like recurring prayers that was verse 27 beautiful beautiful um read us another english verse or two okay if you please uh, the, yeah absolutely the very first i think the uh, very first couple of ones because it will give a sense of uh, uh, like an introductory kind of sense yeah mm-hmm. this is the first verse only when with her can he stir shakti she is shiva's power even shiva who's the god only prevails when paired with her then how can i mere i never did a good deed meritless i how dare i even bow to you even praise you you whom even the gods shiva vishnu brahma adore and then uh, verse 2 even a fleck even a fleck of a speck of dust from your feet fallen dust from your lotus feet brahma gathers it creates worlds with it in spite of a thousand heads vishnu barely bears it shiva crushes it sprinkles it all over like a holy ash ritual that was the second one yes that's lovely yeah that is lovely um it just flows like a poem huh 
that's the idea that's the hope right the hope is to, is yeah. to capture i mean there there is no parallel really translating an ornate uh, yeah uh, um, um, you know sound concoction in a different language <laughs> There, there, there is there is really no way but yes. one hopes yeah. to intimate one hopes to suggest one hopes yes. to yes. to give a taste right yes give yes. a flavor or at least affect yes. a, a, a somewhat parallel um yeah. experience in, in a different tongue yeah um, yeah it's all it's, it's all about rhythm and assonance and and um, mm -hmm. alliteration and it's it's lovely um, when you uh, and also in addition to hearing it aloud when one is reading it uh, you make various decisions about which words to 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 um to place on new lines whether or not yeah. they're uh, they could be mid-sentence and you place certain yes. words on new lines and tell us a bit about those decisions if you if you could See, uh, for me i like to draw attention to what's happening in the sanskrit and try to recreate the experience of it. So it may look like it's it's um, dropped off in the line. But for example, just this one that I just read, the even a fleck of a speck of dust from your feet. See, in the Sanskrit, it's taniyam sampam sum tavacharana pankeru habhavam. I mean, listen to that. It's tavacharana charana pankeru habhavam. There is your feet and feet lotus. Pankeruha, and it is he. The, he's using the word for lotus, which is the hair that grows out of dirt. You know, so while saying that Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva lift up this speck of dust, but of course he can't say dust because this is goddess Shakti doesn't have dust on her feet because the feet are lotuses. So it's fallen on the feet and taniyamsam pamsum. It's like a slender bit of pollen. So in the English, I replicate that effect, but even a fleck, and then I qualify it with even a fleck of a speck of, and then it's dust from your feet. And then I qualify that with pollen dust from your lotus feet. So this kind of repetitive um, sort of opening up um, sort of imitates the Sanskrit um, experience, Lovely. I think. So you've been translating texts for some time, have you not? Yes. And could you tell us a bit about that for you? Is that, that Clearly that's, you know, you know, what other things have you translated? How long have you been doing it? You know, what, what, is the, what does that mean? to you work of um, from, it's, it's poetry mainly I'm not really like a I'm not a professional translator I don't just do something somebody wants me to do um, I translate in order to know the what I'm know know the work and to and to to know it deeply and well and so uh, each one just happened without a plan it just, it just, I just gravitated towards it. It either happened, as they say, that you know, books that you write, you might plan, but books that you translate have been chosen for you, or the books choose you. <laughs> I don't know if that is so, but um, it feels like that sometimes, you know. The Gita I translated in 2008 while I was still doing my MFA in creative writing. Um, 
it was uh, I was in a translation theory class and the professor um, wanted us to do a textual analysis of something like take four four different translations of a single text do an analysis and then um, write an essay and I had actually originally picked the Gita Govinda but he said uh, oh why don't you do the Gita and I said Gita like that's boring but he said no look it's a good it's a good it's a good text to take because you have multiple translations and you can really understand what's going on and do you know raj actually i hadn't read the gita at the time of course in my school days i memorized you know karmaniya vadikarasthe mahaphaleshikadachana etc etc but i just like a handful of shlokas from the gita which were in school syllabuses etc but i had never read the gita in its entirety until then because once i started going through books and then i looked at the sanskrit and i read the sanskrit and i was completely horrified how dramatic it was and how clear it was and how simple it was and what a beautiful spoken word poem it is you know nasato vidyate bhava na bhavo vidyate sata such beautiful rhythms the word pairs and uh, such a drama in it which and i felt that the translations were um making it more complicated uh, of course they have to be complicated because the concepts are complicated but sometimes they are more than necessarily they're more complicated than necessary and um, yeah so i was compelled to do my own that so that was that yeah that was in 2008 yeah so one imagines that um the translation enterprise is not done for you there there might be um other works uh that may choose you to translate them <laughs> yeah 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 i've translated the ishavasi upanishad um i have a book of uh, kalidasa's works um in which all of abhignana shakuntalam and megadutam and then one canto each from each of the um, like kumara sambhavam and raghavamsham and one act from each of the plays and selections from ritu samharam that was uh, out in 2015 or so i just i that was a commissioned book actually but not commissioned in the sense i didn't do it because it was commissioned i thought about it and i just couldn't say no because i love kalidasa so much and um, i just went for it unfortunately i had to do the plays as well to get the book but <laughs> <laughs> i just wanted to do the poetry <laughs> but once i started working on it i quite liked it so i did that <laughs> so you uh, clearly you enjoy what you do uh, in terms of your translation and your scholarly production etc etc um and um Uh, you're independent yes uh-huh yes and so could you tell us a little bit about that path for you well, this is something i'm very interested in because there are a number of folks in the field of uh, in the humanities really or in religious studies and hindu studies certainly uh, who who you know let me put it this way you know at 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 the mm-hmm. uh, at, at the last uh, madison uh, conference mm-hmm. not so so long mm-hmm. ago a couple of weeks at this point from recording um I was invited out to give a talk on this sort of apurvata career of mine you know this, this wow. just to share because there would be 
potentially a number of grad students, mm. PhD students, yeah. who may be looking for models uh, yeah. beyond uh, beyond the non-existent professorial jobs at this point. And so yeah. um, uh, this is part of my motivation for asking, but I gen- genuinely I'm interested, like, how has this worked out for you in terms of being independent and producing what you'd like to produce? You know, it's actually a very, very tough question. Um, uh, first, I would say just um, I'll consider the advantages and disadvantages, right? Um, the, on the negative side, you don't have resources like the libraries that you might have in the USA. Once you're a part of an institution, you have access to resources just like that, you know, interlibrary loans, um, everything is just so easy for doing a particular research. Whereas, um, and I guess that may be something that you can access if you're in a place like the USA. Even if you're not a part of an institution, you may be able to be, um, uh, to have library resources, you know, through some form or the other of membership. But I guess if you're in India, I mean, it's a bit, it's ironic. It's just deeply ironic that, you know, our subject matter is India. And then if one, if you choose to live here, it's not the easiest place to do research that you can't actually really um, get hold of many of the source materials easily, like just like that, you know, while you have a lot of on ground information and, you know, these other people who are creating that information, the information that is being studied, in a sense, I would say the primary sources who are the people who practice this um, you know, whether Hinduism or Jainism or Buddhism or whatever, I mean, whatever is happening on ground in India, including Islamic practices, all, all the other religious forms of uh, practice, um, the primary sources are here, but the research that has occurred on these primary sources is not accessible here. So that is a problem. And of course, the advantage is that you don't have to grade papers and you don't have to um, spend a majority of your time um, teaching. On the flip side, teaching is a great way to train yourself and it's a great way to be up to date. It's a great way to take a topic and really like come to grips with it and go get on top of all the research that's ever been done on it and then be ready to to then engage with others about it. So so both sides exist in terms of that position. Having said that, I would say that those who are joining a PhD program in religious studies, um, in order that it might become a profession, they're in a different place than those who are joining it in order to learn the subject. I was sort of the second type. I joined, I mean, I, uh, I was a non-traditional student. I did a PhD in my, um, I think I must have been, was I 40? Yeah, I think I was 40, 40 years old, I mean, uh, when I started the PhD program. And I did it because I wanted an organized um, uh, understanding. I wanted access to scholars and I wanted to uh, join the dots, as it were, you know, to like make myself better informed and study um, the subject I was interested in, I was wanting to do research in mantras. I was already convinced that that's where the secrets of the universe lie. And somehow I was going to have to do 
research on mantra. So that was like my passion. And um, uh, yeah, so I just got admission and I dived into it. And of course, I was completely thirsty for everything I learned. And I had a wonderful time. But I never really had any intention of being on a tenure track um, uh, uh, thing um, uh, because I thought that I would give back to the community and the world through my own work, which would be enriched by all that I studied. And I'm very grateful for all that all my teachers gave me, uh, that all the resources gave me. And uh, my output... Um, is uh, is therefore um, led by my uh, by my interests and by where I'm going in my practice, and so it also combines and pulls in from my um, I guess my poetry uh, life and um, literary interests, etc. So it's sort of at the intersections of poetry, literature, uh, religious studies. Uh, life and people <laughs> yeah that's fascinating that's that's a fascinating trajectory and clearly um really one that you find fulfilling you know evidently from speaking to you and you know i can relate to much of it as well insofar as mm. you know, somehow um commingling or dovetailing you know the, the scholarship or you know knowledge production you know learning and sh- disseminating what we yeah, can about yeah. our, about our interests so with um practical life wisdom in yeah, addition yeah. to sort of um i'm uh discovering more and more something i knew a very long time ago that my mm-hmm. first my first um the first discipline that i fell in love with was um uh literature english literature at the time Oh. And I started a, a, an English literature degree at the University of Toronto and um, mm-hmm. uh, left it after a couple of years and came back when I discovered I could do uh, I could do uh, uh, literature and history and philosophy uh, in the South Asian context, but uh, under the umbrella of religious studies. And so I'm, uh-huh. I'm discovering more and more, probably mm. with the publication of the most recent book, the, the, which isn't a... Uh, an academic book insofar it's not a monograph it's it's a, it's a narrative uh, work called the stories behind the poses and realizing how oh, much yes. I love... I've, I've seen that yeah uh, i just yeah. love um uh, realizing them one of my great loves what a it's just, great concept yeah it's just stories and telling stories yeah. and yeah. perhaps one day you never know i might even have a creative novel or, or something in me but it's so why not and why not yes you know um on that uh, thought one more thing i'd like to share is when I, um, all those years, like all my life, basically, when I was uh, writing poetry, I also had a, a job, like a, a job that was my livelihood. I was in advertising and television for 20 years, you know, but I was uh, writing poetry and essays and I had several books by, by the time I joined the PhD, I think I must have had eight books. I mean, and you know that I wrote the Gita when I was doing my MFA. Uh, I mean, the Gita translation, right? So, uh, and that separating the two also, I think, helped keep it. I I mean, I I don't, not so fond of using the word pure, but I don't know what else to call it. I guess um, uh, free from the pressures of production, 
because then I, I think perhaps what happens in academia or in a profession where the output sort of is necessary for uh, fitting into certain templates, then you're not you're not led only by your by what is compelling to you because there are other demands. So, I mean, if, if I was, a, I guess, a poet in, in some countries where you're paid by the government, you have to produce stuff likewise. Or if you're writing a column in a newspaper, you have to churn out one every day, you know? Um, well, but if you're free from that, you don't have to. You, you do what is necessary and good. Unfortunately, uh, 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 gone are the days of patrons. <laughs> <laughs> that is also true. But I mean, I'm saying that it, you know, just as you one keeps one's art um, away from market pressures, um, yes, absolutely. like that, like that, uh, it depends on whether you see uh, a doctoral program as something that you're doing for knowledge. Or, which is, or is it a part of the profession? I mean, we all have to have livelihoods and it's a bit unfair to, to, to say to somebody who has joined a doctoral program with the desire to become a professor or to become a teacher in an institution to say that now, hey, you have to find alternatives to this. How unfair is that? That is sad. Welcome. We shouldn't have more students than can be accommodated by the system. Welcome to our current situation. <laughs> I know. Uh, but if, there are no uh, easy choices in these situations, whether for the students themselves or administrators or programs. And, and um, yeah, by some happenstance and touch of ingenuity, yeah. I, I found a way to to yeah. stay in Toronto and uh, do what I'm <laughs> here to do but uh, I, you know this this kind of thing happened in MFA programs I remember going to a particular place for a writing fellowship and discovering that all the kids in the shopping malls were MFA grads like all the kids I'm sorry mm. not not the consumers the the ones who were sales people they were they were working in in stores they were working in stores in the shopping mm. malls because like full-time, not just summer jobs and not just overtime jobs. They were, that was their full-time jobs because they had an MFA and what now, you know? There are so many MFA programs, but there are also so many writers and poets with qualifications of MFA unless they have their first book out or second book out. They're not really going to get into any teaching jobs. So that, that situation, I've actually seen that in the MFA programs, you know. And in, in literature and poetry, all the time you see bios, uh, well, I'm a plumber and I'm a poet, or I'm a, or I'm a car mechanic and I'm a poet, you know. It, it's all the time. But, I mean, I guess a PhD is a different matter, perhaps. I'm not sure. <laughs> Fascinating. Well, thank you for indulging that that line of questioning. That was interesting. Hopefully, um, hopefully useful to some of our listeners. Um, now back to this uh, beautiful um, translation uh, of a beautiful text. Um, was there anything else that you wanted to share about uh, the work, about your process, about the translation? 
No, no, I think your, your questions were, uh, you've brought up all the main points. I'm sure that everybody who is interested in listening to this uh, podcast would already have a basic uh, a reason to listen to it. They would know what is sounder letty, et cetera. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for appearing today. Thank you. Thank you. For those oh. listening, for those listening, we've been speaking with um, um, Dr. Mani Rao on her brand new translation uh, of this song, Dariya Lahiri. Um, uh, the, there's a link to her site and the publication in the podcast notes. If you're interested at all, go check it out. Until next time, uh, stay safe, keep listening, and uh, keep reading beautiful poetry in whatever language. Take care.